Hi there, and welcome to episode 55 of this Value Through Vulnerability podcast, a podcast that is dedicated to helping put the human back into humanity. And today I'm really excited to introduce you to Nick McClelland. Nick is a sales and growth leader at Mercer Marsh Benefits. And we had a really wide-ranging conversation. Both of us work within international sales and commercial environments. So it's really nice to go a little bit deeper on the people agenda um, as two people that actually work in the commercial uh, part of our businesses. Areas that we touch upon today include leadership, diversity, inclusion, sales, vulnerability, culture, education, coaching, networking, mindset, and so much more. And I really think you'll, uh, you'll enjoy the conversation. We'll be really grateful, he and I, for any feedback you may be kind enough to offer across any social media mediums. And in the meantime, enjoy the conversation, and I really look forward to hearing from you soon. Welcome to Value Through Vulnerability, a podcast dedicated to putting the human back into humanity. And today I'm really excited to introduce you to Nick McClelland, who is a sales and growth leader at Mercer Marsh Benefits. So good morning, Nick. Morning, Gary. Good how are you doing? How, how, how are you today on this lovely Monday? Very good, very good. It's been a nice, relaxing weekend at home and um, playing with the kids mainly and uh, preparing my little one for exam week this week. Um, which I'm quite surprised at the age of seven she's having to do that, but uh, but we're getting there, and it's quite nice to come into sunny London today. So yeah, all good. Oh, awesome. Well, look, thank you so much for joining me today, Nick. What we'd like to do as we get going, and I think we'll come back to that education point. So I think there's something in there around uh, uh, the future of work and how we how we engage people. Um, yeah. Can you give me a bit more background? You know, I mentioned that you work for uh, Mercer Marsh Benefits. You know, what's what's your trajectory been, and you know, what are you passionate about, Nick? What brings you here today? Goodness, uh, I mean, I could go back a little way, um, Gary. I'm, I'm sort of, I have a, quite a diverse background in a way in that I um, didn't set out to be in the benefits world, but that's where I've ended up. Uh, and have been for about the last 14, 15 years or so. Um, I actually originally, well, firstly, was going to be a rugby player. That was my, um, that was my secret ambition that I was trying to uh, make a career of back in my early 20s and didn't quite make it. Got quite close, but not quite, not quite there. And then at the same time, I was trying to study law. So um, that was sort of the, the default view of a boy from Belfast who needed to uh, do something with his life. You sort of seemed to be edged towards professional services. So I ended up um, studying that and then realized very quickly that that definitely wasn't me. And uh, I, wouldn't, um, I wouldn't enjoy that career too much. And so to be quite honest, like a lot of people, I think I kind of stumbled into the benefits world um, around 2005. Um, Took a job working at Thompson's Online Benefits, which at the time was a probably 25 people um, startup in the sort of tech space in the, in the employee benefits world. And I loved it. I stayed for nearly 12 years, about 11 and a half years, um, when the company eventually sold to Mercer. Uh, and it was a bit of a mission accomplished at that point. And I decided to, to sort of fly out, having been the boy that grew up, wanted to be my own man somewhere else. And um, I ended up joining JLT for a couple of years, but just under two years uh, before Mercer came and acquired JLT for, for quite a large sum of money last year. And so as part of a large uh, 
global multinational acquisition of the group by MMC Marsh McAllen. And so I find myself now about six weeks back into Mercer's world, but probably more excited than I've ever been about the path ahead. And, uh, and that's where I am today, sort of supporting the sales and growth of the organization, but probably with a, a strong lens and eye on the kind of health and wellness uh, of employees for our clients. So that tends to be where I spend a lot of my time thinking, uh, thinking about. Awesome. <clears throat> Thank you so much for sharing that. I think it's, it's really interesting hearing about your, your background and studying law and you know, up in benefits. What I'd like to ask you about, Nick, is what was, what was it for you that made you realize that law wasn't the route for you? What was going on for you at that time? Yeah, it's, a, it's an interesting one, Gary. I think, um, in a way, I just I don't think I ever truly felt comfortable as I was going through both the degree and after that, which is the LPC, the sort of um, qualification course you need to do to become a trainee. And, and I couldn't quite put my finger on it, probably throughout the academic stage. I mean, I never loved the academic side, I have to be honest. I was much more interested in my rugby career at that point, but I sort of muddled through and just about got, got through. But there was something not sitting quite right. And it probably didn't hit me until the, the sort of end of my course um, on the LPC, which is a year-long course before going into a trainee role. When I was just sort of looking around and thinking about the environment I would be in, the, um, the people I'd be working with, and going, this, this doesn't feel like it's really me. Um, I don't feel like I'm that person. And I didn't, you know, in all honesty, I didn't have a clue what, what that was at that time. I think I was still quite young. I didn't really understand myself at that point. Uh, but I did know deep down that, that that as a career wasn't going to feel right. And, and having got to know uh, a number of lawyers over the years, including marrying one, um, I'm absolutely sure I made the right decision. Um, but it was just something that, that, that niggled at me in terms of kind of going into that environment. And actually having worked with a lot of law firms as well, um, I think it's quite an interesting kind of structure that, that those type of organizations have. I don't think they're particularly conducive to the kind of the future of work. And I think in a way, it's not unsurprising that I've ended up, yes, okay, in the benefits field, but then very much thinking about um, the future of work and, and a lot of my day job today. Um, I think I'm quite sort of passionate about what that means. And I'm not sure many law firms there are adhering to what I would call the kind of future um, in, in that sense. So, yeah, I, I, it's hard to put your finger on it, but there was something something niggling at me that didn't feel right. And I'm just glad I pushed the button because I think I could have quite easily fallen into a 20-year career that I would have hated before something hit me quite hard in my mid-40s. Thank, thanks so much for sharing that, Nick. I, I just find it really fascinating. I think we've all been there, haven't we? Any, any of our listeners right now, that moment of actually, do I trust what my body's telling me or do I ignore it any, and, go, and carry on anyway? Even at that younger exactly. age, interesting, isn't it? It's interesting. I think that's the thing. At that younger age, I think it's really hard to know what the answer is, but, but at least trusting yourself that it's not the right thing. And, and look, you know, I was, my mother, who was a lawyer as well, was dismayed when I rang her to tell her that I wouldn't be pursuing a career. Um, uh, but equally, they backed me and, and they understood that there was something niggling there. And I think having that around me was a big support to making the decision that that wasn't quite right. But I won't lie, there was probably nine months of my life back then that I really didn't know what on earth I was going to do. Um, until I landed this kind of graduate trainee role at, uh, at Thompson's all those years ago. Well, I'll tell you, I've got a little bit of a, I've got a bit of envy to be honest with you, Nick. It took me two or three years ago to have any idea what I'm here to do. So uh, <laughs> maybe I got lucky. Maybe I got lucky. <laughs> um, you speak about that you're really passionate around well-being as a particular topic. 
um, amongst other things. But I'd like just to explore that a bit with you, Nick. Is that something that you've always been passionate about? Is it something that you've learned about as you've gone through your, your career to date? I think it's, it's a little bit of both. Um, I think if I start on the kind of personal side of it, I, I guess because I have that background in, in kind of professional, semi-professional sport and having had a large focus, probably from the age of sort of 15 upwards on, on looking after myself physically at least, um, I think just naturally, inherently, my identity probably has a, has a lot to do with this in that um, I think of my diet back then, my exercise regime, it was all kind of given to me instead on the plate, but it guess that kind of formed habits at an, an early age. Um, and so at a personal level, I probably had sort of quite an intense period and then fell out of love with, with the whole keeping looking after myself, probably because it was too intense during that period. And so I would say between the ages of 25 and 35, probably a good 10 years, I probably wasn't doing a lot of good things to my body. Um, as you sort of, your career takes off and you start uh, working hard, the pub is just around the corner from the office after work. You know, that whole um, aspect of not drinking on a Friday night before a rugby game suddenly didn't matter anymore. And so it didn't matter, you know, what, what days of the week that was happening. And it's interesting, over the last few years, probably a few personal things um, around life. Um, my wife was quite ill about three years ago, which, uh, which is a bit of a shot in the arm. Um, all well now, but, you know, haven't been through quite a rigorous uh, treatment cycle at that point. Probably, probably triggers you into thinking about your health again. And I guess you never lose that identity. And, um, and so personally, I think, I, particularly in the last 12 months, I've had a real focus on thinking about, you know, how I'm um, looking after myself and how I'm thinking about things like my finances, how I focus even on my social life. And I guess that kind of coincided a lot with this sort of rise of well-being in the workplace. And, um, and if you look at sort of the way many organizations are now thinking about well-being as a kind of core offering to their employees, either through benefits or as part of their culture, they tend to be building it around things like physical wellness and around um, social wellness, financial wellness, and, and of course, mental health as well. And so, I guess the, the kind of three nicely dovetailed me rethinking about myself in that way, but also with um, recognizing the sort of shift that's happening in the employee benefit space. And yeah, I guess I've been a bit vocal, um, social media and at various conferences in the past 12 months talking about well-being, because I don't think we're really getting it right as companies today. And I think that um, there is a real danger that we believe we're doing something great for our people when in actual fact we're probably ticking a few corporate boxes and paying a bit of lip service to it. And I think there's a lot more organizations can do to, to really um, make a difference as far as the people's health is concerned, no matter which lens you look at it through, whether it's the physical, the financial, the mental, or indeed the social. So uh, it's, it's a fascinating time from that perspective. And I guess my personal interest in it helps me um, be a big advocate for it in terms of the marketplace as well. Yeah, it's, it's, it's really coming through actually, Nick, as we speak, that, that alignment piece, you know, that clear passion that you have for it personally and where you work to bring that to life. And that's really coming through like energetically, which I think is really interesting. <laughs> uh, I guess it's one of those areas that um, I wonder sometimes if I'm, and I guess this is, this is sort of the, the kind of doubt you have about yourself sometimes, but I wonder sometimes if, if I'm being a bit too vocal about something that is probably quite personal to me, but at the same time, you know, I have, you know, I have experience in the workplace with it. And I, and I don't mean to be critical of organizations who are doing, you know, good things as far as offering their employees these different uh, initiatives. But I, I kind of just can't help but feel we're sort of tricking ourselves into thinking that, that we're suddenly going to create really healthy employees and 
really well balanced employees and you know whatever else whatever way you look at it just by putting stuff in front of them and um and i think there's a little bit more to, to it and that it comes back to mindset it comes back to um whether people are even aware there's a problem for them themselves and i think that's that's the area i'm really interested to explore and we've been sort of doing a bit of research around that in the last 12 months to to probe and see where we can go with it um i'm i'm excited about what what can be done in this space but i do think there is a big shift in both corporate attitude and secondly um, the way that we we then implement ideas and strategies around well-being for people because at the moment it feels a bit like chucking a load of mud at the wall and hoping that it sticks and um, and I don't think that's going to be effective and you know what it'll just mean that in about five years time when people suddenly wake up to that people will turn off the the budget for well-being people will turn off the rules that have been created and um, and we'll be back to square one and that's something I don't want to see happen because looking after people is is such an important part for the future of work. God, it's like about 20, 20 things I've got to uh, unpick with you there, Nick. Um, I think the thing that's really jumping up to me, there's, there's two things that are coming out for me. One is this, you, you spoke about organisations, in your opinion, your personal opinion, don't appear to generally be doing well being well. I'd like to explore that a bit. And there's also a comment you made around, maybe I'm being too vocal <laughs> about this topic. So, yeah. so on, on the first point of view, you know, why do you feel organisations are not doing this work? You know, what are they doing well and what aren't they doing well based on your experience currently? Yeah, I think it depends on the organization. So, you know, I, I do, don't get me wrong, I do see some, some very good examples of, of well-being initiatives, um, but they tend to have, the good ones tend to have something in common in my, in my view. And this is sort of quite anecdotal from basically spending most of my time meeting clients, you know, in, in the last sort of 12 to 18 months or so. The ones who are doing things well um, are really ingraining kind of well-being into the culture of the organization. But there tends to be a couple of things that, that um, well, actually, there's probably one thing that really uh, is the common denominator between those organizations doing it well. And that seems to be um, that there ends up being a really senior person in the organization, typically a board level or executive level, who's had potentially an issue and is quite open and transparent about that and willing to talk to their people about it. And often that's mental health. Um, again, two of the best examples, very large um, IT business and a very large telecoms company that, that I've met with over the last 12 months, doing it brilliantly. Um, but because in both instances, they had a board member who had mental health um, issues and was prepared to talk about it openly. And that trigger, I think, allows uh, the organization to suddenly get the buy-in for the initiative, but doing that at a kind of significant investment level. And, and getting it as an agenda item at the board meeting every month was, was kind of key. Unfortunately, not every organization's in that position. And so what you tend to find is that the guardians or gate holders for, for well-being in an organization is, you know, the heads of reward, the heads of compensation and benefits, the head of HR potentially. And, and I mean, again, can't fault the effort because the effort is, is clearly there. People are looking at um, at what they can do to their people, whether it's financial education, whether it's free food on the desk, or yoga classes, or Mindful Mondays. There's, there's a whole range of things now, and, and nearly every new offering in the employee benefit arena has got wellness uh, in its theme at the moment. But, but I think the trouble is, if it's done in kind of this sort of quite, um, not, uh, I wouldn't say it's not strategic, there's an element of strategy to it, but it is in, in the sense that people will look at financial wellness as a theme, say, for six months, and then they'll look at mental wellness as a theme for six months. It tends to get productized quite quickly, 
And, and we're guilty as an industry of looking at that because that's where the money sits and that's how things you know get get um, uh, get delivered. But unfortunately, as you as you productize something, I think you're diminishing the needs. And if I take something as simple as say financial education, nobody doubts the the power that has in terms of helping people understand their finances, understanding um, and and basically you know trying to humanize the the whole money piece because of course we do our best as an industry as the banks as the insurance companies and so on to put massive archaic language around it which makes it really difficult so there is an education piece there which is important but i think we miss the point that not everybody is ready to be educated and there needs to be this kind of mindset shift uh, that needs to happen first before you start launching every tool under the sun to kind of help your people with their finances because if somebody's not in the right frame of mind they're, they're not going to look at that. And I found out that the hard way during, you know, during my degree and during my, um, my studies in that I wasn't in the right mind shift, uh, mindset, sorry, at any, any point during that period, and therefore struggled with, um, with the, the whole education aspect. And I think it's no different now. We've got employees in the workplace today who will um, benefit from that because their, their personality and their mindset may be in a better place. But we've got a lot of people who probably aren't quite there and yet we think by launching more and more products and things at them, we're suddenly going to achieve this miraculous financial wellness, mental wellness, physical wellness, whatever it might be. So that's the, that's the kind of general um, feeling of, of kind of corporate wellness I see. Um, the bit about being too vocal, uh, I, that's probably in my own head to a certain extent. <laughs> I, I'm, I am a big believer that the, the employee benefits space needs to move on a bit. Um, we are we are traditionally kind of quite insurance-led. We are traditionally kind of designing things around themes in the market and around um, around you know those products that are available. Uh, flexible benefits is a really good example of that. You know, and I delivered a webinar back in January about the death of Flex. Um, not that it hasn't been dying for a few years, it has been, but it's it's still prevalent, particularly in the UK market, and it's got growing markets around the world. But yet it's exactly the same thing. It's offering a big menu of stuff for people to pick from. And actually, when you really look at it, is, um, is an organization benefiting with the things that really matter? And are the employees benefiting for the things that really matter? Um, sure, it might be supporting them in some areas, but you know, there's a chronic underinvestment in the communication campaigns that sit around those. Um, I question whether the right things are being launched or whether it's actual personal bias of the people in control of the, scheme, the schemes who end up positioning things they want to see for their people. Um, it's things like that that I think uh, I've been quite vocal about. And, and I kind of want to see the whole industry shift on. And so that's a hard thing to do because there's a lot of people operating in this. Um, but I think, you know, it is important. Um, but equally, sometimes you have that questioning doubt in your head going, am I, am I the only one who thinks this? Am I making this up? Am I, am I right in thinking there's no real value for either the employee or the corporate? Or... Is that actually too much for people? Are people going to get, going to get annoyed at me for saying that? Because actually their day job relies on, on this. Um, but I think collectively that's something that us as an industry could do a lot more to, to share in the future. I think it's really, really powerful for me, Nick, what you're talking about. Because if I, the fact you are prepared to take your stand about what you believe in, in a caring, supportive, you know, proactive way, I think it's brilliant. You know, you're being courageous to have that conversation. And at the same time, if we've only got a handful, my, my words, if we've got a handful of senior leaders, we shouldn't have to have 
a burnout or a breakdown before people start saying, hey, let's look after our people. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And, I, and I, I see this all over the place as well, is that I've heard this phrase, which kills me every time I hear it, Nick. What's the ROI on well-being? And I'm just like, I've got, I don't have much hair left already. But like when I hear I comments like that, I just go, oh my God, seriously? <laughs> it's, that's, I mean, that's the thing that's been interesting because in a way I have to, um, I have to write the, the kind of the business return papers for various, uh, for various organizations. And of course, you know, when you're going up to a board where maybe this is a new shift for them to focus on well-being, you're getting um, pressure from, uh, from your contacts to make sure there is an ROI figure in there. And it's so difficult to put your finger on that because, again, it doesn't tie neatly into the 12-month return that lots of organizations want. If you're talking to a PLC that's, um, that's generally driven by their 12-month performance in the FTSE, for instance, it's, uh, it's really difficult to get the board to sign off on something that doesn't have a return within the first 12 months. Yet well-being is not something that you can shift around in that time period. You've got to have a time horizon in the future. Uh, and fundamentally, it's again, one of the things that I've been trying to get my, my, my team and the people around me within the business to think about is when they're talking to clients, okay, it's important that you've got half an eye on, on the cost and, and what the return may be and start thinking about terms like productivity and lower absence and all of those things. Because if you don't use some of that language in your business case, you may see some blockers above above the level you're talking to, but I do think there's a like almost a professional obligation on us now to start talking about it as like a cultural imperative for the future. Um, and I don't think you have to look too far away and think about things like you know the rise of the ethical consumer and and how organisations are having to adapt to the way that people buy and consume goods now, whether it's everything from plastics through to you know. Um, uh, rebelling against certain companies because of their investment strategy or whatever it might be. It's, it's not a big jump and we're already starting to see that shift in the workplace and the rise of the ethical employee in that employees are now going to have you know, an expectation that the company they work for does, does good, does the right thing. And if you sort of look at diversity inclusion, if you look at investment strategies that organizations have, um, if you look at the partnerships they have and the supply chain that sits within the organization, these are all, all kind of obvious areas to look at as far as doing good is concerned. But of course, doing good starts at home as well. And looking after your employees is, is doing good, is, um, is doing the right thing because it's the right thing to do rather than having, um, having a return on investment figure on it. And again, if we're sort of thinking forward 10 years, 15 years, whatever the time horizon might be, and you want to be a successful business, it's not too big a jump to saying, well, the successful business in the future are going to be those companies that do good, ethical investments, et cetera. Um, but fundamentally, that means also looking after their people and not doing it because there's an ROI in it, doing it because it's the right women thing to do. Uh, and I think there's an obligation on people like me and a, on an obligation on, on people I work with to start having that conversation with our clients and saying, don't don't lose that in the argument. Don't don't hide that away in the back. Be upfront with that. And if you've also got some nice figures around what you think productivity and absence might look like um, in the future, then then all the better. But don't don't have don't have just one argument. Have both uh, and and do that as an obligation. Which I think is an interesting area to, to think about. Mm. <clears throat> I think I think it's really powerful actually. And, and and I think for anyone that's listening to us now. You know, let's be really crystal clear. You've got myself, who's a salesperson. You've got Nick, who's a salesperson. So we're we are two human beings that are not coming at it from a pure HR 
point of view, Nick, which I think is important to get to, to, to reference here. And I think what's really interesting for me, and I have these conversations myself, is we need a good business model. You know, we need to make money. It needs to be a financial, financially viable business. But you can yeah. be that, and it be good for people and the environment and society. And I think that's the shift that we're on, that's underway, isn't it? That consciousness shift to it, we can have it all, but we need to be intentional about it. Uh, look, I think um, I think sales is a fascinating area to, to, to look at from this perspective because I've you know I've spent you know all my working career um, with sales in the title, and it's such an interesting. I mean, I've, I've, I'm fascinated by kind of thought leadership in the sales world as well. But I mean, I think it's in a way one of the most antiquated areas that you can come across within an organisation. Um, and, and again, I, I think that's something that needs to shift and change in the future as well because we have been influenced so much by the past in terms of how sales leadership works, how sales management works, and that's not necessarily the best way to always get results, particularly as we see this shift in the employee and work, the workplace, in the consumer um, mindset as well. And I, I don't think we do a lot to help ourselves. You know, We shy away from the term sales, because particularly in the UK, we're quite embarrassed about the, the, the word. Um, we have all these negative connotations with, uh, with the word sales and what it means. I, I even think that when you're on the buying end of the spectrum, you've got a negative view to it. So in the corporate world, I've come across um, you know, companies who uh, say, oh, well, I don't want to meet a salesperson. And I'm going, well, what if the salesperson is the most knowledgeable and insightful person who can come and talk to you about this particular thing? You know, pigeonholing them into that particular area is, is, is a kind of, is something that I think happens all too all too readily, but yet you know there's so many bad examples of it out there and so many bad experiences. But I'm not surprised that people have this negative outlook to it. And so again, it comes back to kind of being vocal about it in the in the marketplace. And it's something that I probably shy away from a little bit more than say I would shy away from with regards to the well-being topic. In that um, in that sales, I think needs to undergo a radical shift, and there's room now for us to really be thinking about kind of human-led sales um, teams within, uh, within the workplace. Because again, you know, that's, you talk about the future of work. Why wouldn't you look at that in terms of a, a default view for, um, for how you treat a sales team? And, and I, I'm, I'm not somebody who hasn't, you know, I've grown up in quite tough sales environments. I've, I've been, you know, been kind of seen both sides of the fence. But also I think it's about you as a leader coming out and being comfortable with who you are and whether you can run a team in that way and so on. And, whether that's what you truly feel and, and that's something I'm probably still getting used to and still exploring a little bit in terms of my own style and how I'm, how I'm growing up with that. It's, it's really cool actually so um, I'll share it on here I've, I've only mentioned it quite recently Nick but so as I say I work in sales and with my international sales team within the chemical industry we intentionally started a journey at the end of 2015 to move towards a more human-centric sales approach and without any extra headcount without any Mers and acquisitions influence. We increase sales by 48% and gross margins by 42%. Same people, no other headcount whatsoever. By literally switching from fear-based, why doesn't this work? Whose fault is it? To how do we get stuff out of the way? How do we help each other? What's getting in the way right now? You know, just it sounds ridiculously simple. And it is in yeah. theory, but it's it is it is a shift. You know, you, everybody, and you, like you said, it has to be someone at the top. In my case, my line manager said, okay, let's give this a go. You know, I trust you. Let's see what's going on. You know, like what you're doing or what I'm doing. We've both got experiences. We've got these lovely networks around us. And I think that for me, for the future of sales, 
it's a network system. It's going to be how do we collaborate together. It's going to be less about how do we compete against each other. And I think that's the big shift that's coming for me now. Absolutely. I, I, and I think, when, well, one, that gives me a lot of faith that it's the right thing to do because if you can get a 48% shift um, upwards, then, uh, then that keeps lots of people happy. But I think um, it's, it's having the determination to, to do that. And also, as you said, by opening the doors a little bit and collaborating with others. And I think that, that's the other thing that probably, in the, I, I probably wasn't as comfortable doing a few years ago. Um, I think growing up in one environment for as long as I did, uh, you, you can become quite insular in the way that you, uh, the, the way that you work and, and you kind of almost have this default view, well, why would we look outside when we're doing so well ourselves and so on. And I think that collaboration thing is definitely something I've, I've seen massive personal benefit from. And it's widened my perspectives in the key areas over the last sort of two years or so. Um, because I had the opportunity, I had three months off between jobs after I left Thompson's a few years ago. I had the opportunity to connect with people. And that sort of probably did set me on a different journey. Because again, even the term human-centric sales, I probably wouldn't have really comprehended two years ago. Um, but it's something that in the work that I'm doing within the HR, the work that I'm thinking about with well-being, and obviously in my day job as a, as a sales leader, it's, it's something that I've become quite passionate about as well and it's because of other people um and the ideas that they have and reading more and opening yourself up to that that, that i think has set me on that kind of new journey but i'd say i'm probably a little bit later in the in the stage view and part of that is because even within our industry it's uh, it's i think it's slightly odd sales culture and so it exists in some areas it exists in pockets but um it's not something that everyone's particularly proud of and even within the business i think people will do their best to try and tone down the sales title that you have and so on, just because they're a bit embarrassed about having salespeople. So these are all things that, you know, that I think we're getting buy-in to, to shift and change as we are the conversations with our clients, which, which all in all provides me with quite an exciting time to be at work at the moment, which is, which is why I'm enjoying it so much. That's, that's awesome. It's when, what I'm also hearing as well, though, and I think it's fascinating, again, with us both being in sales, Nick, is this, you know, one of the metrics I use a lot is the, the Gallup, you know, the Gallup engagement stats, which have been stubbornly stuck at what, one, in one in three people being fully engaged for the last decade. Everyone uses that statistic. But for you and I in sales, what I find fascinating to pivot is to say, that means for these senior leaders that tend to want the ROI, how about we look at the opportunity cost of your people? So by you not engaging them, giving them the best possible environment and treating them well, you're getting 33 pence in a pound for every pound in salaries you spend every single month. So if you're spending yeah. three million a month on salaries, you're getting one million of value. Like, and that's my really, like, and I'm obsessed by that message right now, Nick. And that's why I'm telling everyone because I only thought about this literally three months ago. I just thought, hang on, let's stop trying to ROI everything and go, what could we get if we just treated people more humanely? We'd get more yeah. of the money we're already spending. What do you think to that? Would you challenge that? Would you agree with that? What's your thoughts? Well, I'm, I'm again, probably not as advanced in the, in the thinking of, but I can probably draw a few parallels to things I'm, I'm thinking about myself at the moment. It, Often it comes down to um, the people themselves that are within the various teams. And, and I, you know, I've seen this sort of probably eight or nine teams that I see now in, in this role and, and sort of think about where they're going and the management of those teams and then the, the individuals and, and performing within it. And it's really interesting. If I think about things like even just the treatment of an individual within that team, I, there's, there's a, a person that I've worked with in the past who... Um, quite laid back, has probably been pigeonholed with the word lazy before. Um, and I think about how that person was managed in the past and how that person was treated then. 
And I think, well, that was quite, that was quite traditional, quite beat up mentality, kind of harsh environment, beaten up. Um, things aren't going well. The number's not there, et cetera. There's no support. It's not a coaching conversation. It's a go and get this right conversation. And yet that's the end of it. And that's not, not human, right? You know, people have their personalities. People have their, their own individualism and their own ways of working. And I, I know that more than anybody. And I, I know more, I have confidence more now in what I can and cannot do and can communicate that to my bosses as well. There's a lot more confidence than I used to. But with that particular individual, you know, you flip them all around and go, if that person was just inspired by something, you know, if it was just a really kind of motivated, they're really motivated to, to kind of achieve because you're setting them a kind of mission and a purpose within the environment that they're working in, and you, you enable them with a little bit of autonomy to kind of fly within that, um, does that kind of lay back, lazy label suddenly disappear and actually they shift on? And I've seen that with, with a couple of people where that label has been in existence and actually now they're top performers within, um, within an organization because they, they are inspired by what they're doing. But the problem is if you beat somebody up over and over and over again, um, you, will, you won't get anything out. Since when has that worked? Since when has beating somebody up over and over again ever worked in terms of getting performance? Yet, if we look at, say, coaching as a kind of simple word to cover a supportive conversation, um, when has that not worked? You know, it's, it's, it's probably effective 90% of the time. I don't know the stats, but you know, if that's the case, why do we still insist on kind of the beat-up mentality within particularly the sales environment? But you can apply that across any organization, and there's lots of organizations that you hear about who have that kind of negative culture, uh, versus the chronic lack of investment in supporting managers and leaders with coaching and coaching conversations and helping people in that way. And, and I think that is a shift towards being human and recognizing that everybody's different, recognizing that everyone has their personal uh, personal ways of working, and that actually leadership and management of people is is more about understanding those humans and helping them within that they are. Because I, you know, fundamentally believe everybody's capable. Everybody has got, you know, the sky's the limit within their own, you know, mental capacity, if you like. But recognizing that and then recognizing how to work with that person has got to be the future. Rather than going, I'm going to treat everybody in my team exactly the same way and have exactly the same types of conversations and somehow the results look different that person's a top performer that person's not it's not that surprising and and i think that you know we could say the same thing about well-being and personality and and um and the personalization of that it's the same when it comes to management it's the same when it comes to kind of leading but but again having the confidence to explore and have those type of conversations with everybody not everybody's there, and, and I think that's something that's only really come to me in the last maybe couple of years that, that you can do that and you can start to think about the person and understand them better as a human before necessarily defaulting into talking about your numbers, talking about this, rather than recognizing that might not be the best way to work with that individual. And I think that's that's an interesting area that that I would like to sort of continue to enforce and explore within this organization uh, as we move forward because, again, it just doesn't have that focus that... that um, I think a modern uh, modern sales culture might have. It's it's awesome you're doing the work you're doing though, Nick, because you know it does take courage. You know, for you to for you to show up and to speak as you are now on this podcast. You know, you are working for a global, you know, multinational organisation. You're talking very openly about what you believe in. You know, the work you're doing, and I think you're a really good example today of where I see the future of work going, which is why aren't we having these conversations? Because if if you know. Mercer knows you're talking to people like this. You know, I think they're going to be proud of you 
we're having these conversations. You know, you're challenging them, you're challenging your peers, you're challenging me. But the more we do that, the more we all lift up. And I think this is, again, it's trying to get to that point of collaboration over competition for me. You know, we can learn from our competitors. We don't have to sell alongside them per se, but we can learn from each other, we can network. It's not about, you know, hide behind the door, someone else is going to come and stab you. I just really see this collaboration piece being huge, Nick, for me. I really do. But again, you know, that collaboration um, aspect, I, you know, again, probably, as I said, more open to it now than I, I maybe was in the past. And I think that comes with having uh, a confidence and stepping out of, out of an environment um, where I was sort of probably boy to man, really, in that period. And then having my own space and time to shape something, which was the benefit of probably me personally going to JLT in that it was kind of a bit of a blank canvas. And so you could kind of reset the bar a little bit. and. And it's not too dissimilar as I, as I joined Mercer in that there's such a coming together of different companies as part of this big acquisition that you can kind of reset everything a bit. And I've realized that actually that's what I enjoy doing. So if I enjoy doing that and I then have the confidence to go, this is me, this is what you get with me, and I'll, um, I'll talk this way, then, um, then it does make it easier for me to then appear on, on this today and have this conversation. It does... Uh, it does make it easy for me to turn up at a, you know, Reba Wellbeing Congress next month and tell everybody they're paying lip service to wellbeing. It's, um, it's amazing how much this confidence helps. But I guess the challenge is I might, I might be sitting here at a more confident stage of my career, but that doesn't mean that everybody else is in that same headspace um, and has that same mindset. And so it's, it's sort of simple for me in, in my mind at this moment to do that. But for me to give the confidence to you know, one of my team members, for instance, to do a similar thing, for me to give confidence to a, you know, aspiring manager and aspiring leader to take the next step up, these are all quite different conversations. And, and in a way, um, I've, I think circumstances allowed me to build up a level of confidence in the last few years that I probably was suffering a little bit from in my last year at Thompson's. Um, whereas, uh, you know, I have to recognize that not everybody's always in that confident state. And, and that comes back to mindset and it comes back to where people are. You know, if you, if you default into a view that if you stand up on a stage and tell everybody everything's going to be okay and, you know, this is the way forward and so on, you might catch 20% of people on the day who happen to have a positive mindset that day, but you can completely miss the 80% of the people because that's not where everyone's at. And it's so contradictory to maybe where the message was before or where, uh, where, where society is at the moment. You know, we, we don't exactly live in a time of joyous uh, uh, celebration at this moment, given everything that's going on at this stage. Um, you can misread that. And so that's where having these sort of personal conversations with people and, and trying to build up that confidence is, is all we can do as sort of managers and leaders within a company. But it's not something that everyone feels confident about doing. I just happen to be, I think, in a space where, where I have that today. But, you know, talk to me. I mean, four or five years ago, and we wouldn't be having this conversation. I, you know, I would have been through a, a period at that time where uh, my confidence was probably at an all-time low. Bear in mind, I probably had eight, nine years on the bounce of feeling really good as a young guy going through a business. Um, I had a real rock uh, back, you know, about 2014-ish time, and, um, and, and I wouldn't have been able to stand up in front of anybody and deliver a message uh, in, in the way that I probably could today. So it's, it's all timing and probably a bit of luck along the way and knowing when the moment's right to, to start behaving that way as well. But if we can all get like that, then, then I think we're going to be in a better place. 
Yeah, saying, listening to you talk, one of the, one of my favourite quotes. Some people like Branson, some don't. But one of my favourite books from his um, quotes from his book, The Virgin Way, was "Luck is the intersection between hard work and opportunity." And for me, the only thing on this planet that's genuine luck is winning the lottery. You know, there's always energy, there's always intent somewhere along the line for me for, for, for opportunity to come up. And I'm the same as you. You know, three years ago, I'd go as far as three years ago, I wouldn't be having this conversation. You know, this podcast started 12 months ago. Didn't even know why I started the podcast. And I think it's only meeting great people like you that, you know, we're having this conversation now. And I just think, I think we all want to grow. I genuinely believe every single one of us wants to grow and to learn and to, to get better. But we are coming out of a very, very restrictive sort of mindset, aren't we, of the last sort of few generations? Yeah, I, I, I always, I mean, it's funny. I, um, I think it depends on the day as well, you know. Like, <laughs> I have, point. I, I'm, somebody, somebody, um, somebody who I have a lot, lot of respect for and, and time for, who I worked with for, for a long time, I didn't know what he meant at the time. It was only later whenever I was sort of, um, managing people for the first time that I kind of started to understand it but he made a comment about me uh, and it was it was something I wasn't quite sure how to take at the time but, but I sort of reflected on it and realized it was all in the best intent which was um, when you're confident Nick and you walk into a room and you you just have the ability to kind of lift people up with you for the day you've got a bit of a swagger about you, you come in and you you suddenly infect the people around you with that kind of enthusiasm and then he went but oh god where's this going you know and he said but when you are having a low moment when you're having a bad day oh my goodness does that get to everybody you walk in your shoulders are slumped your body language is down you know and unfortunately you're one of these people that when you're up you infect but when you're down you infect as well and and it's something that i, I didn't kind of really get because generally speaking i'd say 80 90 percent of the time i'm i'm in a reasonably good frame of mind but there is there is low points and later on whenever I was having sort of real challenges in the, for the first management job. Um, I really got to understand what that meant because trying to pick yourself up every day to, to kind of have that positive mindset yourself and turn up into an office environment and, um, and, and not kind of feel that and therefore have your team feel that is really, really challenging. And I didn't get it right. You know, I, I know that at a period of real difficulty, I was sort of back to back for quite a few months really really kind of on the on the low side of of that environment and i knew it had an impact on the people around me and it is something I, I've, I've tried to work on in the last few years because let's face it not every day is great you might not have a good weekend and therefore monday might be a bit more of a struggle and if i um if i can't pick myself up and be into kind of that mindset as i walk in i know that i have this um, this thing where other people will, will unfortunately or positively feed off that depending on the, on the mood I'm, I'm at during that day. And, and I guess, you know, sometimes you have to recognize that, that maybe it's not going to go that well that day. And that's okay because, you know, that's being human as well. But sometimes it's better just not to be in the environment. I think that's the, that's the other thing. I, I had a, a Monday probably, probably a month ago now where I didn't, I didn't have a great weekend. Um, I'd, uh, I wasn't looking forward to the week. And I knew that, that I wasn't going to have a good day at work. You know, just like one of those days where you just think this isn't going to be good. And I looked ahead of my diary and I thought, those are all calls. They're all calls. Do you know what? I'm just going to, I'm just going to, I'm very lucky. I get to work flexibly in this environment, which, is, which works really well. But I'm just going to kind of work from home today just to try and reset myself so that tomorrow when I go in, um, I, can, uh, I can try and just, you know, pick that up again. And the mindset will hopefully shift. 
and if it doesn't, then I need some triggers and things like this to, to work on to try and to try and get myself there. But that's that's maybe me being sort of overly mindful of what my position is versus others. And, and I guess that's a conflict for me in a way, because sometimes it should be, well, do you know what? If you are feeling like that, be open about it and come in and look low and, and do so. But I think in the sales world, that that that's trickier than, than others, I think, because part of your job is keeping people motivated each, each day. And that, that can be a challenge when you're not feeling particularly motivated yourself, which, um, which unfortunately, being human, there are days when I don't feel like that. So there you go. Thank you so much for your honesty. It's, it's, I just, I'm, for those that are listening to us, I just haven't stopped smiling as you've described all of that because I've had this very similar thing said about me. I don't know if it's a sales thing or what, Nick, but I'd like to come back to the previous point you made, which is actually, it's, a day, it's, it's, it's in the day thing. Because you're right. You know, I'm speaking about it being historic, generational. I, I drop between knowing intuitively, innately, that we are in the moment. It's not even daily. Like, mm. I'm off this call now and my day turn awful. Or it could be perfect. Yeah. It's literally based on what I'm telling myself in the moment. And yeah. you forget that, don't you? We sort of generalize, we stereotype, we estimate. And then actually, literally every second is a new experience, which is actually quite exciting, really. <laughs> it's true. It's true. Um, I don't think of it like that, maybe. I, I, you know, again, that was something that did help me through. I remember the, the, the difficult period was sort of that kind of more mindful approach and thinking about being in the moment a bit more. But recognizing in a way that every moment can shift and one meeting can turn the day or one phone call can turn the day. And, that, and in sales, I guess that happens all the time. If you think about one phone call saying you've lost the deal, um, you know, that, that can turn a good day into a bad day pretty quick. And, uh, and, and again, you know, where does the responsibility as a leader lie? Are you, do you need to kind of acknowledge that actually the loss is pretty hard and therefore, you know, the mood then gets affected by everybody? Or is it your responsibility at that moment to kind of go, well, do you know what? It's fine. Losing is human as well as winning, right? Um, let's, uh, let's learn from it. Let's see where we went wrong and let's not try to, let's not try to, to do it again. Um, but let's not dwell on it either because we're into the next moment and we're into the next day and we're into the next week, whatever it might be. Um, that's not necessarily the environment I grew up in. <laughs> when you lost, you felt the loss. But, um, but I think, uh, again, talking about shifts in sales, I think sometimes we can dwell on things like that for far too long. And actually, if you've got a balance where the success comes more than the losses, then let's be in a constant kind of flow of celebrating that rather than beating ourselves up too much when when the occasional loss comes through as difficult as it is um from a mindset perspective to, to take that at times and that's something i think again when you're the when you're the person running the sales so as an individual contributor and it's your personal deal it can feel really tough and i've you know i've been there um as a manager as a leader of, of teams like that i always wonder you know just where is the, the line between balancing the feedback aspect and learning from it to then actually getting them moving past that quickly and to be honest it's a bit like you would say to people in general life don't dwell too much in the past there's no point in sales either you may as well look forward learn from it look forward and um i've taken that more personal attitude into things over the last probably 18 months um i think to the surprise of some of my my, my team because they sort of seem a bit surprised that i'm not like more angry that we've lost the people <laughs> God, this, it's wasted energy, right? There's no point. Let's learn what we can, move on. Learn what we can, move on. Um, which I think is quite interesting as well. 
Very healthy. Very, very healthy. Look, as we look to start to wrap up, I want to just touch on a couple of other things, Nick. Really fascinating conversation. I yeah. noticed that you were a judge recently at the Employee Experience Awards. And I, I saw you put out a post saying you was really inspired. So I was interested. What sort of things were coming up for you when you were judging those awards that inspired you, Nick, out of interest? Yeah, it's, it's, um, it's interesting, Gary. I think, you know, when, you're, when you go to these days, there's so much. I mean, there was actually... Uh, there was loads of awards. I was sort of in one particular area focusing on it. I guess what, what I just find fascinating is, do you know what I think would probably inspire me most is just the passion of the presenters on the day. Like, I just, you know, and really quite young, young people coming through who were being put forward by their companies. Some of them were like kind of client managers who were there on behalf of the client that was going for the award. Some of them were quite junior members of the organization that were putting themselves forward for an organization for an organization award. And, and then these people were standing up in front of five stern-faced judges. At least I hope I wasn't too stern-faced the whole time. Um, uh, and, and then sometimes with an audience behind, because you know, it was open session for some of them, so they could come in and, and, and watch, or other people could come in and watch. And, and you've got these people who are standing there passionately talking about the kind of you know, people-based changes that their organizations have been through. That are all around the employee experience, which is, you know, or people experience, whichever way you want to describe it. And and that was the kind of thing that just sort of left me feeling good about the day was that you just had all of these people talking about their companies with such passion. And that says to me that, you know, if if a person from you know relatively junior account management role, kind of first job, second job, can come in and talk passionately about what that organization is doing for its people, you're probably doing doing some pretty good stuff. And, and that's that's a positive sign. So I think that 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 alone was probably worth the kind of the quote by inspiration because that's the thing that I kind of felt the most was the passion coming through. And something that you know I, I love seeing personally and I like to think that I try and give out as well. Um, I think then some of the initiatives and some of the, particularly because I was building on the digital technology side of things. So like some of the technology that is again just just more thoughtful than it probably has been before. You know, I love the concept of trying to engage the person first rather than being all about the end results of the platform itself. So I think, again, in, in particularly in this industry, we see a lot of really good tools that do lots of good stuff um, where the benefit is to the organization, the client, or the benefits to the company that sell, uh, sell the tech. But not a lot of thought often gets put into kind of whether the actual thing, the platform, the software, whatever it might be, will get used and enjoyed and get, you know, have that kind of playful aspect to it um, for, the, for the individual employee or user or whatever way you want to describe it. And um, I think that's what excited me as well was that the tech that's coming through is all very kind of people-centric. It's kind of, kind of got built-in kind of gamification in there. It's got built-in kind of habit aspects in there. It's all designed to get people kind of utilizing it more. And I guess if I come back to the well-being thing, those are the areas I'm really kind of focusing in on the moment as far as tech is concerned because if, if people aren't going to use it it's kind of useless in the future there's no point doing it and so what i was kind of inspired by was that that's not you know that's not solo thinking in my space this was broad hr tech um uh kind of submissions that were coming through the awards and just some really exciting stuff happening there as well so that those those are probably the two things that kind of left me feeling you know what we're doing some pretty good stuff and that's um, that's a good sign for for our broad people industry, if you like. That's awesome. And it, you know, I've, I've sort of intentionally steered away from 
going too tech on the podcast because obviously it's very much about you know the, the human aspect but i love that little segue towards the end of our, our chat because i've not heard too much nick i'm honest about true human centric sort of design with tech because there's so much talk at the moment isn't there around bias in ai and all these things you know if you've got a if you've got a you know if you've got a suite of white males designing the tech you're more likely yeah. to end up with um, sort of biased tech so i guess it's there's still a lot going on but it's great to hear that there's this there is some of this uh, human-centered tech coming i think this there's the thing here about when we're developing anything whatever business you're in it doesn't matter whether you're in a, a, a play benefits business like myself or um, but you know the future we know will 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 surround technology will always surround us. We know it's there, right? It's not going to go away. Um, but one of the thing I, one of the things I think helps is that when you're developing something, when you're designing something, is to get as many diverse views on it as you possibly can. I think what we're all guilty of is looking within the four walls of the business we work within, where there are some brilliant ideas and brilliant minds. So therefore. Why would we need to go outside to kind of think through what this product might be engineered like or designed like or the UX might look like? Um, and, and I think it's a mistake because actually when you bring in a diverse perspective on anything, it can only enhance it. It can only give you something to think about. And it may just even be planting one single seed that may turn into something much bigger. Uh, and I've had that experience myself over the last sort of nine months or so in, in designing something where... You know, I had a I had a framework I'd mapped out and done some things and you know used a little tool online to kind of work out what, what things about. And in my head, it looked great. In my head, it sort of this is going to be really game changing. And then I showed it to somebody who came from a completely different perspective and and came from a completely different place. And and they were the ones who said, you, know, you need to you need to focus in on the on the on the person who's going to use this, um, not on what you're trying to achieve for your company, what you're trying to achieve for the client, which ultimately is a corporate in my world. Think about whether the person is going to really engage with some other doesn't with them. And, and I let them lose on it a bit. And trust me, it's a lot better as a result of that. So I think diverse perspectives um, could apply to anything. And, and I think it's something that uh, comes back to your point from earlier on. When you collaborate and you don't just do it within your industry, you don't just do it with, um, within your, your business, when you bring in outside perspectives, it can only enhance, uh, enhance what you're trying to do, which um, I think is a exciting place to be in as well that's awesome well th thank you again for sharing I'm, we, oh my god i've realized we've had one of those wonderful chats that sort of run on towards 45 50 minutes so i hope the listeners are still with us because it's an awesome awesome conversation for me selfishly so <laughs> i do want to give you <laughs> i want to give you the last shout out though because i've i know from your background you've done a wonderful thing of co-founding um a charity uh, ride to recovery so yeah. I'm going to give you the opportunity for the listeners maybe to learn a little bit about that in case it's something they might be able to, to support as you go forward, Nick. That's very kind of you, Gary. I, I do appreciate that. Uh, I'm completely unexpected. Um, yeah, Ride Recovery, in a nutshell, is something that's about 10 years old this year. It's a, um, it's a cycling event that we did in 2009 as a result of a pretty tragic event which happened to my best mate's brother. Uh, my best mate's brother was... Um, was paralyzed in an unprovoked attack in London, unfortunately, and uh, pretty pretty grim circumstances, but it's led to something reasonably positive um, at the back of it. So we have done three journeys so far, um, London to the Alps. We then did, that was 2009, we did the Alps in 2012, the Pyrenees in 2013. And this year I am taking, along with my friend, uh, 47 people um, from Innsbruck, 
across the Italian Alps, the Swiss Alps, and the French Alps back to Morzine uh, near Geneva uh, in six days, climbing about 20,000 meters, doing about 850 kilometers, and hoping to raise a lot more money for charity. We're, we're currently on about 360,000 raised so far through the events. Um, we'd dearly love to kind of get up towards the half a million pound mark this, this year, which would be brilliant. So it's um, ridetorecovery.org is the website, and that's the details that will be available. If you follow me on social media, I'll be probably talking about it a lot in the next few months. Um, and uh, yeah, I'm really excited about it. It's, it's something I'm very passionate about. Again, probably ties into my personal well-being journey, but also um, I just think it's, it's a great thing to see uh, 47 people arrive on top of a mountain after six days of really hard work and look at their faces and the smiles and sometimes the tears as they drink that first sip of beer. So um, that's what's going to be driving me on for the next six months. Uh, and thank you for giving me the time to shout it out. Much appreciated. Not at all. I just think it's stunning. Just think it's really, a really stunning thing to do, Nick, over and above your day job and the busy lives of your lead. So thank you for doing it. So you mentioned about that, that particular website. You mentioned social media. How can people contact you? What other ways, LinkedIn, et cetera? What's the best uh, way to follow up? Yeah, probably. Um, so I'm on Twitter, which is at Nick underscore McClelland. I'm on, um, or you can also follow the Ride to Recovery account itself, which is at Ride to Recovery with the number two. Um, and I'm on LinkedIn, uh, which you, I'm easy to find because I'm probably one of the few Nick McClellans around. It's not, not that common a name. And um, that's probably the best. So yeah, if you go through one of those channels, you'll, you'll be able to network with me and, and I'd love to hear from, from more people, definitely. Awesome. Well, I'll make sure all of those contact details are in the show notes of the podcast, Nick. And thanks so much for your time today. Have a great day. Pleasure. Thanks, Gary. Cheers. Bye-bye. Hi, it's just Gary Turner, your podcast host here. Really appreciated Nick's time today and I suppose a really fascinating conversation. A few of the key points I'd like just to reflect on with you, the listener, are first of all was around well-being. I found it really interesting with Nick's background in semi-professional sport that he's got a passion around well-being and said that he doesn't think that companies um, are really getting this right today. He thinks that there's a real danger that we believe we're doing something well when actually we're just ticking a few corporate tick boxes. This really resonates with me and it's, a, you know, I'm very passionate around the, the well-being agenda as well. You used to lead these self-care weekly twitter chat we're looking at uh, well-being chat uh, potentially bringing that back jeff way and i but i think the thing that, that, that perplexes me the most is that we seem to be very happy to throw money at fruits or discounted gym membership or all of the things that everybody's talking about but i think too often there's actually more let's say fundamental well-being challenges we're dealing with so actually how, how does someone feel about themselves what level of self-worth do they have do they like themselves? Are they struggling with some form of challenge at home? Could it be that they've got um, a caring responsibility or maybe a, pa a parent with a disability or a family member? You know, we just so rarely go below the surface, I feel in my experience to date anyway, um, knowing the human being behind the job title. And I think that's a real danger that we continue to, to pay for sticky plasters and believe that our duty of care is complete. And I think that's not good enough. I think we need to be creating the safe, safe spaces for people to have the conversations that we all need to be having as adults and as human beings. And I think this is really a catalyst for some of the other key takeaways for me, such as um, diversity and inclusion, where Nick spoke about so many organizations don't see the need to go outside of their organization. 
um, because they know, they know what it's designed like, they know what it's engineered like, they, or they think they know what the user experience needs to look like. But as with so many things, you know, the more views we get, the more diverse those views, the more challenging those views are from different perspectives, the better the product's going to be, the better the service is going to be. We all know that. We know that the results of a lot of the big consultancies are showing that having more inclusive viewpoints drives better outcomes financially and for the business and for the people. Yet there still seems to be this hesitation to step into that. And I can only believe that's to do with fear or, or worry of loss of power, etc. So really interested to hear what you think about the, uh, the inclusion debate here as well. I thought it was really, uh, re really exciting and really important to hear Nick talk about that he has confidence more now in what he can and cannot do. And he has the confidence to communicate that to his boss. So that vulnerability, that ability to say, I don't know, I spoke about Gary Ridge around those three key words for him back in episode 50 of this podcast. You know, it sounds so counterintuitive to think that saying I don't know steps into your power, but it does. It draws people in, it allows them to think for themselves, it gives them the permission to challenge the status quo and to come up with innovations and to experiment. And the final takeaway I'd like to, to mention is around short-termism. So uh, my friend Kevin Monroe had a fantastic conversation on his Higher Purpose podcast with Bob Chapman, the CEO of Barry Weymiller recently. And Nick, for me, spoke to this, which is around it's really difficult to get the board to sign off on something that does not have a return within the first 12 months. That, for me, I do understand, but I don't empathise anymore. I don't, I, I don't see why we continue to conform to that way of, uh, way of being. And again, Gary, Gary Ridge is very strong on this. He chooses the investors in his organization as a publicly traded company, and they need to be long-term investors because that's how they view their people, that's how they view their business model. So what I see here is a lack of accountability in some ways. You know, senior leaders, rather than challenging the status quo and having a conversation openly and as adults around, is there a better way? They just conform and just say, yep, that's what the market wants. Therefore, that's what we'll conform to. So I'd like to put some challenges out to all of us that are leaders, all of us that are individuals. You know, let's really challenge the status quo with grace, with care, but with clarity as well. You know, what, what are we seeing? What are we seeing that could help improve our businesses, help craft the roles that we want to work, work within and the organisations that we want to work for? So I think I've really, loads of really good takeaways for me personally here. I really appreciate Nick for his time. But if you've enjoyed this podcast, we'd really appreciate you leaving a rating on the iTunes um, podcast app. And in the meantime, until episode 56, my name's Gary Turner, the host of the Value Through Vulnerability podcast. And you can find me on Twitter at GaryTurnerZero. We will find me on LinkedIn as well. All the very best for now.